And again, it seems like that narrative is continuing on of this battle between good and evil because there are Jews that stayed in what is now Persia because Babylon has been overthrown. And there is an attempt to wipe out all the Jews. And so we see, man, it looks like evil is going to win as the king actually makes a decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, you can wipe out all the Jews. That you can take up arms against the Jews because they are a wicked people. And so go ahead and destroy them completely. And so there's this back and forth. And we see that through Esther. But what we're going to look at this morning is that even though God does not seem to be prevalent in the story, we know that God is always working. And so that's where we're going to land this morning. So if you'll join me, we'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into what God has to say. So Father God, we come before you, and thank you again that we can gather together. God, thank you just for who you are, and God, you chose us, that we are your people, not because of anything that we've done, but God, solely because of who you are. And so God, my heart is that we just live as your people out of response to that. And I pray that through this message, our faith be strengthened in you and that we just see that whether you are prevalent on the scene as we can see, or God, maybe you're working behind the scenes and we don't see it, may our faith be rooted and grounded in you. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. So a little bit of the context of Esther is it, occurs in a 10-year span between 483 and 473 B.C. So when we were reading through Ezra, it falls in place between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. That's kind of the context. So the context is Cyrus has now come to the scene as the ruler of Persia. He is the king. The Babylonians have been wiped out. Persia is the new world power. Cyrus is king, and he tells the Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild the temple, as God promised would be able to happen. And so 50,000 Jews go back in obedience to what God says, because in Deuteronomy 28, God commands them to go back. And in Jeremiah and Isaiah, God commands them to go back, and 50,000 respond in obedience. But not everybody goes back. There's this group of Jews that stay in this Persian empire, not going back to Jerusalem, not going back to Israel. And that is the context of Esther. Where Ezra shows us this is what was happening in Jerusalem with the rebuilding of the temple, Esther shows us this is what was happening with the group that did not return, that was disobedient to God's command to go back. It really has four key figures. The first one is Ahasuerus, who is the king. That is his Hebrew name. His Greek name is Xerxes I. And for secular context, I love this because I'm a historical fan, and I love the story of the Battle of the 300. They made a movie about it, 300, where you have 300 Greeks going up against a Persian army of like 100,000, and he is the king of that Persian army. And that happened before Esther fell on into the scene, but that is who this king is. He is that king of like the Battle of Thermopylae and the, the whole Greek-Persian theater that was going on. You have Ahasuerus, you have Esther, who is kind of the protagonist of it, the main character. It's named after her. 
Her Greek name is Esther. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. We're told she is beautiful. We're told she was orphaned as a child, and so she was being raised by her cousin, whose name is Mordecai. And again, he is also the protagonist of the story. He's actually the one that got the Jews in this case in the first place, kind of, not really. But like uh, Haman, who is the last guy in there, he gets promoted to second in command under Ahasuerus or Xerxes. And so he's like, man, I am powerful. I am good. He starts walking through town. Everybody bows down to him, but not Mordecai. He's like, I'm not going to bow down to you. And man, that just really irks Haman. And so he's like, man, this guy, he's not going to bow down to me. I really wish we could get rid of him. So he's a Jew. I don't like the Jews. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Ahasuerus, can you just wipe them all out? So he goes to Ahasuerus, and he's like, you know what? Those Jews, they're filthy. They're dirty. They're, they're, they, they live according to different traditions. It would be better for the Persian Empire if they were gone. You should do that. And Hazarus was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So I'm going to sign a decree to have that happen. And Haman is just still mad because Mordecai will not bow down to him. So he starts throwing these little temper tantrums through it all. Kind of comical, but at the same time, serious stuff. And so Haman is like your antagonist, your, your criminal. He's the bad guy in the story. And so then a survey of it, the first four chapters is that threat to the Jews where you're reading about Haman coming to Ahasuerus and asking, can we please wipe out the Jews? And then the final half of it is the victory of the Jews because there comes a point where Mordecai saves Ahasuerus. And then again, Mordecai is elevated because he is just doing good. And also he is coming and saving the Jews through Esther. And so Ahasuerus brings him up and then he's like, you know what? I signed that decree though that said that all the Jews have to be wiped out on the 13th day of the 12th month. And once the king decrees it, it's got to happen. And so then he goes and he says, Mordecai, what should we do? And Mordecai says, actually, will you allow us to defend ourselves? And so that's what the Jews do. On the 13th day, they rise up and defend themselves. And instead of the Jews being wiped out, we are told that the Jews wipe out 75,000 of their enemies. And so there is the victory of the Jews. When you read it, you see some similarities between Esther and Christ. You see, first off, both of them were willing to face death for their people. Jesus, obviously, we see how he did. But Esther, there's a time where Mordecai comes and he says, there is this threat against the Jews. You need to go before the king and ask him to spare the Jews. And Esther is like, nobody goes before the king unless they are asked to come before the king. And Mordecai is like, you know what? You might be saved through this, but if you don't do this, you're not actually gonna be. Your family will be wiped out, but God might save the Jews otherwise. And so Esther, and that's where the famous line comes where Mordecai says, maybe it's for such a time as this that you are in your position as queen. And so Esther does that. She goes before him and she's like, I'm willing to possibly die because of this. And then she goes as an advocate for her people. That she goes and speaks on behalf of her people as we also know that Christ did for us. And I probably skipped one where, yeah, I did. They both are elevated. Because as she goes in, she is elevated to the king in which she is able to come before the king and be that advocate just as Christ did through his sacrifice. That we are told that he is an intermediary. He is an intercessor for us. 
He is the go-between so that we can now with confidence boldly approach the throne of God. So they both faced death, they both were elevated, and they both are advocating for their people. And then just some little trivia for it, for the book of Esther, nowhere in the book will you see the mention of God. Nowhere do you see them talk about prayer, and nowhere does it mention the law. And so again, you kind of think about it, where are they at this time? They're in Persia. Where were they supposed to be? They were supposed to be in Jerusalem. Speculation here, but do they not mention God, prayer, or the law because they're not living according to that? Because they got comfortable where they're living? And it's like, you know what, we're going to fall in line with the Persian customs. We're going to live according to them instead of being obedient to God. That's my speculation is that's why. Because they were not faithfully following God like they were called to. But that doesn't mean that God is not faithful to them. And so you have that it never mentions God, prayer, or the law. And then also we see this feast, which is still celebrated today. It's like at the end of March. It's the Feast of Purim. Which is, pure is what they did. They cast lots. That's what Haman did. He started casting lots as to what day should we kill all the Jews. And the lot fell on the 12th month. And so then, when God delivered the Jews, they celebrate this feast. And it's a reminder of God's faithfulness and deliverance to them. And they still celebrate it to this day. And they read Esther on that occasion. And then the last thing, and this is where we're going to kind of land this morning is the key theme that you see in Esther, where God shows his providence. God is still having a hand in it all, even when the people appear to be disobedient, and even when God appears to be absent, he is still provident. He is still over everything. We see his hand at work. It is not dependent on who we are, how well we obey, it's on him. He is God. And that's, again, where we're landing today. That God is always working. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I hit droughts. Where it's like, all right, God, I don't feel you today. God, I don't feel like I'm really praying to you. It feels like my, my words are bouncing off the ceiling. I don't feel like your word spoke to me. I read First Chronicles chapter 1, which was like in the beginning, Adam gave birth to Seth. He didn't give birth, but fathered Seth. And it's just like, okay, I read another uh, genealogy. That didn't really speak to me, God. And so as believers, we go through these ebbs and flows of, man, I'm on fire for God. And then, man, I just feel distant from God. And what we see in Esther is what we can resonate with today. It doesn't appear like God is a main character in our lives, but what we can be sure of is that God is still working, that God is always working in your life. It may be in the background where you don't see it. It may be where you are even disobedient to him, but God is always working. Throughout history, God has worked to preserve his people, to protect them, and to work through them. You see, God is faithful no matter what. Even when these Jews were commanded to go back to Jerusalem and they stayed in Persia, whether it's because my speculation is right and they got comfortable or for some other reason, they stayed 
and they did not follow God's command, God was still faithful. So often I can get in this mindset of I fall. Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I can get in this mindset of guilt and I can get in this mindset of I'm a terrible person. And it's like, I just ruined God's entire plan. Like, man, that was the one domino. And now his entire plan for humanity falls apart. First off, I am putting way too much weight on myself. I'm not that important. But also, God is faithful. God will always have his way. God's will will always be accomplished. And we can take heart and hope in that, that he will see his way through, that he will be faithful. God says this through Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing I can do to mess up God's plan. That there's not a sin I can commit that will be like, oh, no more can I work through you, Andy. You just failed miserably. Look at the history. Look at the hall of faith. Look at the people that Jesus and God have worked through. And you see failure after failure after failure. And yet you see God preserving his plan for Jesus and for his people, despite the downfalls. These are not heroes of the faith. These are ordinary people that God just continued to work through. I mean, God is faithful. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tells us this, that we don't walk by the things that we can see. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so we can trust God, not when we see it. That's not faith. I don't, I don't um, believe something will happen after it happens and be like, I knew it, I trusted it, it happened. Because it's kind of easy to believe in something you already know is happening. I mean, what we are called to do as believers is to look to the eternal, not the momentary. That we look to who Christ is. We look to things unseen, not things that are seen. Because right before this in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling us that the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust that even when we cannot see how God is working, He's going to work through it. We can hold Paul's view that he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Because what's the context of Philippians chapter 1? I mean, it's got Philippians 4.13 in it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it must be like a really good moment. Like Paul's living in his mansion. He's king over Rome. Like the Jews just came back and dominated all their foes. But instead, Paul's actually in prison right now. He is in prison, and right after this, in verse 12, he says, you know what? I'm sure that God will work all things. Like, that's a different verse. But he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let me show you how. Because I'm currently in prison, and he says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's good that I'm in prison. How? Because it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are more bold to speak the word without fear. So because they're seeing Paul in prison, Paul is like, it's good that I'm here. Who says that? It's good that I have no freedoms. It's good that I'm in prison living in this little cell chained up to a guard. How's it good? Well, by, by all visual appearances, Paul, that's not good at all. But we live by faith, not by sight. And when you look to the things that are unseen, you see that believers are gaining boldness to proclaim because they see what Paul is going through for the gospel. And they're like, man, if he can do it, I can do it too. I'm willing to take that stand. Also because I see, as Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal glory that God has set forth for us. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 17, right before he says we live by faith, not by sight. And so they're looking at that, and they're like, man, it is good that he's in prison because the gospel is advancing. God is at work, even though it doesn't look like it. Where it looked like God was absent, we see he is progressing. He is advancing and moving forward. So much so that Paul, again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, says, We know that in all that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, going through difficult trials, difficult trauma, difficult stresses, whatever it is, bad situation, Paul is saying, if you have been called according to God, if you live by faith, not by sight, then you can know God will take that. And it is bad right before this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He said that there are sufferings, there are afflictions, but he says again, they're not worth mentioning. Not because you're not going through them, but because we live by faith, not by sight. So we're fixing our eyes to the eternal glory. That when you are living in that eternal glory and you look back at all the sufferings, all the persecutions, all the turmoil that you went through for the gospel, you look at it and you say, yes, I would do it again. Because that doesn't even compare. I mean, it'd be like going and getting a shot knowing that you will be healed from that shot. And a lot of y'all are like needle phobic. I kind of am. Where it's like, I, I like seeing the blood pop out when I give blood. But last time a lady like manipulated the vein, it hurt. So I don't like needles anymore. But it's like, man, if I knew that this was going to give me a shot and I was going to have to go through that momentary pain. And I knew afterwards I could have the ability to fly. Like, man, sign me up for that. Like, when I see the outcome of it, the momentary pain is doable. When you see the eternal glory that is waiting for you, yes, there's light and momentary afflictions. And they seem like big deals to us here and now, but again, we're living by faith, not by sight. And so Paul is telling us that we know that God works for the good of those who have been called in all things. And so we can make it through all things. And right before that, Paul's talking about suffering. And he's saying that can be used for God's glory. Your past can be used for God's glory. No matter how dark it is, remember, you cannot mess up God's plan. That instead, he can use your past. A lot of things that Christians like to do is never talk about the past. And I, we don't want to dwell on it. We don't want to like live in guilt of the past. But man, what about our testimonies? 
of what God has done in our lives. Where it's like, man, I used to be addicted to these things. I used to be a slave to myself. I used to be all, like, whatever it is, whatever your past is, and you can share the redeeming love of God in your life. That is using your past to bring it for the glory of God. That you can say it didn't look like God was working, but he was always there by my side. God is faithful. That God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. So throughout history, when you look at the Bible, this is what you see. God taking terrible circumstances and using them for good. God taking what man meant for evil God meaning it for good. Those are the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. As he is looking the people that sold him into slavery in the eye, and now their father is gone, and so they're freaking out because they're like, man, he's going to like be mad at us and take it out on us. And he says, nah, you all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How, how does that work? Because Joseph had a dream. They were living in Canaan. Joseph had a dream that all his brothers were going to bow down to him. And he was his father's favorite. His father gave him a coat of many colors, being like, hey, you are my prized child. You are the, you are the son of the woman that I love, not this other girl that I got stuck with because uh, her father manipulated me. You are my prized child. And the brothers hated that. And so he goes out to spy on them one time, kind of spy, like go take a report of them and bring it back. And they're like, we're not going to have that. So they threw him in a well. Finally, some, some traders came by and they sold him. He ends up getting sold into Egypt. And then he's sold to Potiphar and he works his way up to being second in Potiphar's house. But he was handsome and rugged. The Bible actually tells us that. And so Potiphar's wife liked him. And there's a day where he's in the house and just his, Potiphar's wife is in the house and she's like, come lay with me. And he's like, no, how can I sin against God? So she reaches out to grab him. She gets his cloak and he runs off and she holds that. And so she frames him. She says, he came and tried to molest me. He came and tried to have his way with me. So now Joseph is thrown in prison. And for two years, he's in prison. He works his way up in prison, and then a baker and a cupbearer come in, and they have dreams, and Joseph is able to interpret those dreams, and he tells the cupbearer, you are going to be reinstated into your position, but when you are, remember me. Do not forget me. And then it says that the dreams came through, the cupbearer was reinstated, and it says, but he did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. But there's this repeated phrase in chapter 39 about Joseph when he's in prison in Genesis 39 verse 2 it says this the Lord was with Joseph here he is in prison he's been sold he worked his way up he dropped back down he's in prison it seems like God is absent but what are we reminded in scripture the Lord was with Joseph Three times in Genesis 39, it tells us the Lord was with Joseph. Even when he was forgotten, the Lord was with Joseph. Even when he had just fallen down and been thrown into prison, the Lord was with Joseph. Even when it seemed like God was absent. His word tells us three times in one chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. And then Joseph goes on to tell his brothers all this God was working. In Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 4, 
Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother. This is like the revealing moment. They didn't know who he was. And now he's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one you sold into slavery. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me. Uh, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Here it looks like evil is winning. It looks like evil has put good in checkmate. And God's like, no, that's not the way it is. I have been with my people, even when it seems like I'm absent. I have been working behind the scenes, even when it looks like a terrible situation. God, how can you work for good in being sold into slavery? How can you work in good by having him go into prison and be forgotten? And then you see God worked through all of that. How? Well, first off, God was preserving his people. Because right before this, we are told that in Canaan, where they were supposed to be, the Canaanites were trying to intermarry with them. It's a really interesting story in like Genesis 32, I think, where they're like, hey, we want to marry this one of your daughters. And they're like, well, first off, uh, y'all need to be circumcised. And so all the men are circumcised. And then when they're sore, obviously, they go through and they like wipe them all out, but they're trying to intermarry. And so what happens whenever they go to Egypt? Egypt was very racially segregated, where it was like, hey, we are Egyptians. We don't marry outside of Egypt. And so God was preserving his people where there was not the ability to intermarry. He was preserving them, and he was growing them into the nation that he said they would become. He was preserving them, as Joseph said, where you would have died in Canaan, you can now thrive here. And then they go into exile, or not exile, they go into slavery during the time of Exodus. Why? How can that be good? Well, because they had become so prosperous, so prevalent, they probably wouldn't have wanted to leave Egypt. And God called them to go to his promised land. And so through all of that, God has been working behind the scenes. God is working in your life. Like when you look at scripture and you look through all of this, it is a repeated theme that God is at work. And as Gene told us, what God did back then, God does today. Hebrews tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whether you feel God at, at work or not, whether you're in a valley or on a mountaintop and you're like, God, I don't know how I can ever get out of this, hold firm. Know that God is at work. Live by faith, not by sight. Keep trusting God. So what do you do? Todd told me one time in a Bible study, what do you do whenever you're stuck in a rut? You try and you just gear forward, but sometimes, he said, you need to tie a chain onto it and just yank it out. And so sometimes what you need to do is reach out to somebody else and be like, hey, man, I'm in this rut, and I need help. 
I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with whatever it is, and I just need to confess. James chapter 5 tells us that if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we will find healing. So sometimes we need to confess and be like, I need drastic action. Will you help me in this? And so whatever it is, God is at work in your life. Trust him. And sometimes you just got to power through, holding firm to God is still working. Sometimes you got to get somebody else to tie a chain to your life and yank you out of that habit. But whatever it is, fix your eyes on Jesus. Walk by faith in him, not by what's going on around you. And see that no matter how dark it is, God can use that darkness for his glory. Because he can call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The greatest example of that is the cross. When you look and see how God, in this dark moment, could you work? And then you see three days later, the tomb is empty. You see that we now have direct relationship with God. That right there should be the reminder to us that God can and will work even in the darkest moments. So whatever it is you're going through, hold firm to God. Know that even though you don't feel him, we don't live by feeling. We don't live by faith. We live by, or whoa, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. Faith in who God is and what he has called us to be. And therefore we live according to his word. And so apply what he says to your life and trust him. Father God, we come before you and we thank you that you are at work. God, I thank you that you have not abandoned us. You have not um, taken the agnostic approach of just hands off and whatever becomes, becomes. But God, you have a plan and God, you have a purpose for our lives. And that God, you are working. And so I pray as uh, Elijah, Elisha did in 2 Kings chapter 6 where his servant went out and saw all the terror going all around him. But Elisha prayed, open his eyes so that he may see what you are doing. God, I pray that the eyes of our hearts will be open to you and that we see that you are doing a work. And so therefore, God, we just stand firm in who you are and what you call us to do. And God, whatever you're laying on your people's hearts, I just entrust it up to you. So God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand with me this morning as we sing an invitation song, it's that time that God has extended for you to come forward, put your faith in him, become a child of the kingdom. If he spoke to you this morning and that Holy Spirit is hovering, answer that call this morning. As we sing forever, it talks about him being glorified forever. And we know that Jesus has imputed his righteousness 